Like it's very difficult for someone brand new to come in and figure everything out how to do things. How do I use a decentralized exchange? It seems easy to someone who's been here for a long time, but it really isn't easy enough for someone who's not totally used to it yet. Crypto makes no sense at first when you're trying to learn. And you need help when you're barreling down the rabbit hole. The only way out is through. The only way to learn is to do. We're here to guide you. Welcome back to Down the Rabbit Hole. We are on episode nine already out of 10 episodes, so we're wrapping it up. And today we're going to dive into all of the technical aspects of crypto. So blockchain technology, how does blockchain actually work? What are these blocks that we're referring to? What is the chain? And I've got Hoshoshi here with me today. Hoshoshi is a crypto content creator, YouTuber, educator, all of the things. He's been diving into crypto and blockchain since pretty much ever since the Bitcoin white paper came out. So uh, well over a decade and his background is in programming. So he is, I, I would say one of the best people I've heard explain these complex technical topics like blockchain technology in a very easy to understand way for people like me who are non-technical. So welcome Hoshoshi, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for the awesome introduction and, and thanks for having me. It's always good to create content with you. I feel the exact same way. Thank you so much for being here. Before we dive into what blockchain actually is, give people a bit of context about who you are. I did a high level intro, but tell people like what your background is uh, more in detail. And then what was it that first made you go down the Web3 rabbit hole? Yeah, it's a great question. Like you said, I've been working in this space, both in a research capacity and then also like on a technical capacity for a long time. As a kid, my dad worked in computer science. He built like a software company, nothing massive, nothing huge, but it really lit the fire for me that I really liked that area. But I also had a lot of passion for finance and economics and game theory and some of these other like psychology practices as well. And so I was in school at the time. I had no clue what I wanted to really do with my life. And I literally stumbled upon the Bitcoin white paper on StumbleUpon, like clicking through, trying to find things to read. And I read it and I'm like, this is what I want to do because this brings together all those things. It's a piece of technology. It's very much rooted in computer science, but it has facets of economics, of game theory, of psychology enmeshed in, in, in it. Uh, and then the rest was history. So that was like 11 years ago now, I think. And I've just kept doing it. So here I am creating content, working in the tech side of things as well, and feeling really blessed. That's awesome. So in, in the last episode, we spoke with Karen Lamreckow all about crypto wallets. We dove into what cryptocurrency is and all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. She brought up a few things that I want to dissect with you on this episode. The mm -hmm. first just being blockchain. So we talked about different kinds of blockchains, Bitcoin, blockchain, Ethereum, blockchain, Solana, all of these different ones. What is a blockchain at, at, at its core? Try to explain this as best you can to somebody who is a non-technical person who's not in crypto. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's a great question. I think peeling all the like the layers back of all the things that you hear about that blockchains can do really at at the core, at the very base layer, a blockchain is quite literally an immutable, 
ledger, which is distributed amongst a set of decentralized participants. And if I talk about some of the nomenclature there or some of the words there, immutable basically means that this ledger itself is built to be tamper evident, as in if someone tries to change it, it should be very obvious that's happening. And the result of that is that the ledger itself cannot be modified and data therein can't be deleted after it's been recorded. So you can only append to it. So that's why you hear in the news, you hear in the media about blockchain being this a boon for transparency, for traceability, for auditability, and why it's a really great rail for things like payments, because it gives you a clear history of everything that's happened directly peer to peer. The biggest question I think people ask is, okay, well, I get that, but what does it really look like? What is it? Because it's so abstract. And at the end of the day, what a blockchain really is composed of is people like you and me, Diana, that sit down and we run a piece of software on our computer that lets our computer communicate with other people running that same software. You're agreeing to a set of protocol rules. You're agreeing to this responsibility of keeping a copy of that ledger. So that's where you get the distributed nature of it. Everyone keeps a copy that's running this software. And the only way new data gets added to it is by way of a process called consensus, which is basically on a cadence reaching agreement between those different participants that are all over the world potentially on what the state of things are, what the legitimate data is in that given moment in time. Got it. So what are these actual blocks then? What did that what does the blocks refer to? Yeah, and that's that's exactly where the name blockchain comes from. And I think this is where hopefully it'll click for everyone. And so that process that I just mentioned, consensus, right? I said it happens on a cadence. And it, often that cadence is the consummation of a block. And a block is really a set of transactions that's been agreed upon by that set of participants at a given moment in time. So they reach consensus on a block of transactions. And so inside that block, you have a list of validated transactions that are going to be set in stone on this immutable ledger that everyone agrees upon. And in that block, you also have a reference to the previous block of transactions. And so that's where each block is chained to the last in this canonical straight line chain on, on this blockchain. That's where the data structure comes from. So that's really all a blockchain is. It's a, a chain of blocks filled with transactions that people agree upon in a, in a certain rotating cadence. And then where does all of this live? So like in the traditional, you know, internet world, you have these mm -hmm. servers located everywhere where the backend is hosted. What about with blockchain? Where does everything live? Yeah, it's all it's, so it's rooted in a family of technologies, or I guess you could say a connectivity pattern in this peer to peer model where, like I mentioned before, like Diana, you and I were both running what would be called a blockchain client, we're running this piece of software that allows us to connect to other people running that same software and keep that copy of the ledger and agree upon transactions and all that. This all happens in an automated way. This is software. It's not like I'm sitting there typing and rapidly figuring everything out. As the software runs, it's storing a copy of that ledger, the underlying data structure on your computer. And so each participant that's running these nodes has that same responsibility. They're keeping this copy and this all happens via connectivity directly peer to peer, nearest neighbor, I guess you could call it. Got it. And then in the last episode, we talked about all of these different types of all, all of these different blockchains. So we've got Bitcoin mm -hmm. as a blockchain, Ethereum is a blockchain. Uh, there's so many other blockchains. Why do we need to have so many different ones? And 
maybe like how are they different from one another? Maybe just talk about like the biggest ones um, and compare how they're similar or different from one another. Yeah. So I think if you go back to the, I guess, the first mainstream instance or use of a blockchain, and that was the Bitcoin blockchain, what's referred to as Bitcoin Core today. So that was basically the proof of concept that something like this could work. You can create a non-replicable, tamper-evident, relatively fraud-proof monetary system or monetary instrument or asset that could be facilitated in a completely peer-to-peer way without a centralized entity. And the focus of this was to prove that you could do that. You could do that without a centralized entity. It wasn't necessarily designed for all the things that came after that. So then Ethereum came into the mix and it said, let's take the the fundamental concept of what Bitcoin and the Bitcoin blockchain did, but let's shift the data structure a little bit. Let's add what it's called an execution environment in general to this model, shift it around so that we can add programmable logic or software to the mix. And that's what introduced this whole concept of smart contracts, which I don't really love the name of because smart contracts are really just code, right? They're not smart and they're not necessarily contracts. Like they're just code that will only do what a developer says. That's neither here nor there. Ethereum was very focused on applying that idea of reconciling transactions of digital assets and all these other things on a blockchain without a centralized entity, but on top of that, allowing for programmable logic to triage those transactions and trigger them. So to add programmability to the mix. And then a lot of chains have come after that, trying to improve upon or make or specialize the model that Ethereum has had popularized in the very beginning. And so it all, it all harkens back to this, this common philosophical model or technology problem, which is the blockchain trilemma. Uh, you folks might have read about this or seen this online. And it's basically you have this triangle, a trilemma, a challenge of trying to achieve these three characteristics at the same time, decentralization, security, and scalability. So you want something to be super fast, a lot of transactions per second, handle massive global scale. You want it to be super secure and very decentralized, very hard to do. And you always have to pick two and you have to trade off on one. And so everyone's been trying to come up with their own solution for how do we achieve all three? And that's really what these all these different blockchains and different technologies have been trying to do. Yeah, and we'll get into all of that in a second with gas fees and scaling. Mm-hmm. And it seems like the one piece in the trilemma that people have sacrificed is the scalability piece, or maybe mm-hmm. that's just the hardest one to solve and we're not quite there yet. Um, going back to something you said, one of the features of a blockchain like Ethereum, for instance, is this element of programmability so mm-hmm. that you can build things on the blockchain other than just cryptocurrency. So can you talk about some of the things that you can build on the blockchain besides just crypto and maybe explain like how that works? Yeah, I think there's a lot of focus on like fungible assets like ERC-20 tokens for those who might be familiar. Common cryptocurrencies you trade on cryptocurrency exchanges and their prices, of course, are the big focus of all the media. But there's a lot of other use cases. The obvious one, and maybe you could tangentially call these cryptocurrencies, maybe more so the family of digital assets in general. But I think NFTs as a family of technologies are an alternative use case. Conceptually, they're similar, but the use cases are very different. You can use NFTs as a method to 
issue licenses for pieces of content, to issue event tickets, to go to physical real world events or virtual events. Uh, of course, digital art is an obvious use case that most people are familiar with in this space uh, at this point, having heard it on the news. But outside of that, there's really one really powerful area that is a place that I've been doing a lot of research is in digital identity. The idea that this can shift the way that we uh, both create and maintain our identity attributes, our license to drive, our, our even just our personal information, our, our birth date, where we were born, uh, different demographic information, being able to collect those things as irrevocable digital attestations in the context of a blockchain where just like a cryptocurrency, we hold those attributes in our wallet and can selectively share those with others. I think that's a big part of the future and blockchain is a big part of that future solution. Yeah, for sure. And can you very quickly, we talked about this back in episode six with mm -hmm. on NFTs, but can you quickly just talk about the difference between ERC-20s, which is like the cryptocurrency tokens you were talking about versus NFTs, which are ERC-721s, and then we've got 1155s in the mix as well. Yeah, so I think the, the first thing, or what will really help people understand the difference between these token standards is really the idea of fungibility. Fungibility is basically the idea that I can exchange one asset of like kind one-to-one. -one. So a US dollar is a fungible asset. I don't really care what dollar bill I have because every dollar bill is worth a dollar. So I can give you a dollar, you can give me another one back, Doesn't I don't mind, it's fungible. That's what ERC-20 tokens are focused on. So it maps balances of fungible tokens to an address, basically a username in the crypto world. ERC-721, ERC excuse me, and ERC-1155 are uh, non-fungible and mixed fungible uh, token standards, respectively. A non-fungible asset, something like a Pokemon card, where I can't necessarily trade you, Diana, one of my Pokemon cards for one of yours because they each have different attributes. They're holographic. They're a different Pokemon. They have different abilities. They all have different values because of those different abilities. And so a non-fungible asset is, even though they're of like kind, maybe in the same family, I can't exchange them one-to-one. -one. And so 721 is very focused on that. You create a family of unique one-of-a-kind assets. And 1155 is just a more flexible version of what was popularized in ERC-721, allowing you to do a lot of different things like complex, more complex relationships, maybe a little bit more scalable as well in a mixed fungible contract. Got it. Got it. So before we dive into talking about the gas problem and L2s mm -hmm. and things like this, let's back up and just look at like from a higher level, how far mm -hmm. we've come with, you know, how blockchain technology has evolved since the early days, but also... Mm -hmm how much farther we have to go. So other than this like gas fee problem that everybody's experiencing with Ethereum today, what are some other major problems you're seeing with blockchain technology as it stands today? The biggest one right now is the sort of the, the disconnect between the traditional world and or the traditional finance world more likely and sort of government and regulatory posture and this very new technology that adheres to a very different operating operating principles than i think the older systems are used to even changing from the traditional sort of web 2 i'm sorry if i'm diving into like other jargony terms but the older way right traditional social media 
this now shift towards cryptocurrency is make, trying to flip social media's incentives on its head. That mismatch creates friction and I think sometimes creates confusion for people. They're like, I'm not sure if it's going to be regulated. I'm not sure if this is going to work. I don't know if the world's ready for this. It, it, that becomes very difficult. From a technology perspective, though, if you go beyond that sort of intrinsic stuff, the technology side of things, user experience is the biggest one. Like it's very difficult for someone brand new to come in and figure everything out how to do things. How do I use a decentralized exchange? It, it seems easy to someone who's been here for a long time, but it really isn't easy enough for someone who's not totally used to it yet. So that, that comes down to wallet technology, which you just mentioned. I think you had an episode about recently that comes down to user interfaces and how we explain things. And so this project, the reason I wanted to do this so badly to be on this on the show is because this education is very important for people. Yeah, absolutely. So let's go ahead and dive into the other big problem, which is gas. Mm -hmm. I know I've already brought up this word multiple times, but I think we should back up and explain what gas actually is in the context of what we're talking about. So maybe start there, explain what is gas? Why do we, why is this the thing we have to deal with when we exchange cryptocurrency or operate on the blockchain? Sure. This came into the mix as a, th a theoretical concept when Ethereum first broke into the scene and this all started coming to fruition, this programmability concept moved beyond simply we need to pay fees on the network to to pay for that validation process. Like I mentioned before, you know, you you have now you're reaching consensus on the state of things between peer to peer participants. You don't have a centralized entity like a bank or a centralized entity like Facebook who runs an app server which makes decisions for you and writes data for you. You don't have that. So you need to pay, basically using supply and demand, this distributed group of participants to do that validation work for transactions and to execute that code for you. And the execution of code takes resources. It takes compute resources. It takes storage when you need to store data somewhere. And so all of the idea of gas was about creating a fee mechanism, a fee-bearing utility that you can use to pay for those resources that you're using on the network. So it's a way to make sure that there's some economic lever to, to pay for people who want to use more storage or more compute resources on the network, make sure they pay their way. And so all of the gas fee issues that we have today where, where gas fees are really high is just a product of the fact that there is so much demand for space in blocks of transactions. People want their transactions fulfilled. They want their data stored. They want their tokens moved. And there's just not enough block space. So it's really all about product, like this, the, the product of supply and demand. That's really what it boils down to. And the only solution is better scalability. And scalability in this case means you can fit effectively, and this is simplified, but you can fit more transactions into one block. It's not about just increasing block space. There's a lot of other things going on there, but it's being able to process more transactions at any given time. And going back a second to this problem with gas fees being high, that's definitely a huge issue. Another big issue is that gas fees are pretty unpredictable. So you might mm -hmm. have gas fees really high and then it drops by 20 bucks the next minute and then it goes back up 40 bucks the next minute. It just seems like it's so inconsistent. Is there a reason for that? Yeah, I think part of it is 
even prior to some recent updates into in the Ethereum ecosystem that were focused on making these things more predictable. So creating a, a, an easier way for wallets to predict what fees you're going to need to pay depending on the action you're taking. Irrespective of that, I think it's just the design here. And the crypto space moves so fast, the, the, the crypto space slash blockchain space moves so fast that all it takes is one exciting project or some price movement to move in one direction for the volume on a blockchain, Ethereum, to increase dramatically in a short time scale. So you might submit a transaction that goes into the queue at the edge of a huge NFT drop where everyone's trying to get an NFT. Your transaction, if you paid a fee as if the, the network traffic was here and now all of a sudden it's here, your transaction is going to get knocked back in the queue essentially because that's it's just unpredictable in some cases. I really think that's what it's all about is it's hard to predict the swings when the supply available for block space is so small. Yeah, that's very true. So then going into the solution, you said layer two solutions. That's the way that people are thinking about solving this gas fee issue. Talk a little bit about that. Maybe some of the different types of layer two solutions people have proposed and played around with. And then in your view, like what is the best layer two solution? Yeah. So layer twos as a family of different solutions, if you will, are really referring to delegating some of the responsibility of validating large volumes of transactions to a layer above the main blockchain. And so you have, let's just say Ethereum is your layer one. That's where most of the transactions are happening now. The thought is instead of validating every transaction here on this layer one, let's put them up a layer two that's optimized for speed, that's optimized for transaction throughput. And then every once in a while, we will back propagate those transactions to that layer one for security. So a lot of layer twos rely on that layer one, like Ethereum, for example, for their security guarantees. There's another sort of family of these called side chains, which are often conflated with layer twos. These side chains, a great example of one is Polygon. A lot of people have heard of Polygon. People call it a layer two, which is fine, but Polygon's technically a sidechain because Polygon has its own consensus mechanism, its own security guarantees. And so just want to call that difference out. I think it's really good to have that knowledge starting when you first get into the space. Layer twos, true layer twos would be things like, for example, optimistic rollups. There's a family of them of layer twos, optimistic rollups, like Arbitrum and Optimism in the Ethereum space. Those are focused on cheap, quick transactions. And then when you want to reconcile balance, maybe the balance of tokens as you've been trading them on that layer two back to the Ethereum layer one, you can do that, right? Take some time. There's a, a delay period where you're waiting for validation. I think the holy grail and the future of layer twos, what will really solve this problem long-term is another family of these solutions, ZK rollups, stands for zero knowledge rollups. If you think about it, you're really rolling up a bunch of transactions into a bundle and using this technology that I'm not going to go too deeply into, zero, zero knowledge proofs, you can basically validate a large bundle of transactions that happen somewhere else on the Ethereum mainnet, the Ethereum layer one in very quick succession. So that's really the future. There, there are uh, projects working on it, like Matter Labs is a great one. Their product is called ZK Sync, I believe. 
So that's what I'm really passionate about. And I think a lot of people are researching it now. You'll probably see it more and more over the years. So at a high level, you mentioned security as something that got brought up with layer twos. Are layer twos less secure than layer ones? And I guess what might be some solutions to that? Or should people be worried about operating on a layer two because their transaction might not be as secure? I, that's a tough one. I, I think that in some ways, there there are definitely things that can go wrong. There's no question. But I think a lot of layer twos, if, if assuming they're very well, they're well designed, and these things are they're being tested very well. Okay, I will give that to projects like Optimism and Arbitrum. They've spent a lot of time validating what they've been building because uh, there's a lot of complexity involved. That being said, I think what people need to worry about more in terms of security is like other avenues that people have been using to find scalability, which is bridging assets to other blockchains from a destination. Bridges are a little bit more risky. I think layer twos are native. They rely on the security guarantees of your layer one blockchain, like I mentioned before. And so you can have, as long as they're well-built and they have a, a good reputation, you can generally trust them with your funds. But of course, there's risk in everything. So you have to be very careful and know what those risks are before you put a lot of funds at risk. So layer twos are basically like the way I like to think about it is like layer one is say you've got a big city and you've just got all these pedestrians and everyone walking around everywhere and it gets mm -hmm. way overcrowded and it's you can't get anywhere because there's just too many people. So then mm -hmm. you're like, okay, let's build like an, a, a train, like an elevated train, like above the ground level. And let's call that layer two. And this way we can divert some people through the train system to get places instead of everybody being a pedestrian and walking on foot on the same layer. So when you think about it that way, are layer twos a an ultimate solution or what happens when the trains get too crowded? <laughs> then do you build another layer of trains above that layer and call it L3s and then L4s? Is there an end to this um, or are we just going to keep building additional layers on top of the layer we're currently operating on. I would say that it's very unlikely that we approach as a collective, that it's approached that way, where you just continue to build around the problem. I have a feeling that what's ultimately going to happen is technologies like ZK rollups, for example, will give us the ability, even potentially at what is somewhat like the layer one may be integrated more deeply and, and natively into that layer one chain like Ethereum, give us the ability to, among other techno technological advancements, have much higher ceilings for scale, much higher transaction throughput with adequate security and decentralization, which is what we're really looking for. In that case, we won't then need to keep putting band-aids on the problem by building layers above that have some trade-offs as you go, right? The trade-off to the layer two is that you might not be able to then quickly reconcile your transaction to the layer one. If something goes wrong in the layer two, what happens? Some of the questions that you asked, but your analogy is great, right? It's if the issue is volume on the layer one, then let's try and find a way where we can safely move things to another area, to another network for, for example, let's say I'm always sending, Diane, I'm always sending you cryptocurrency. Let's just say I'm always, I'm sending you ether every other day. There's really no reason for me to be paying those high fees and no reason for me to be running them through the Ethereum layer one mainnet. 
when I could just as easily do those transactions throughout the month to you on a layer two, and then once a month, reconcile that back to the layer one Ethereum mainnet. So it's really just finding a way to take that minutia, that volume off and put it somewhere else and then reconcile it back. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, which also feel free to send me ETH every other day if you'd like. (laughs) (laughs) Happy to receive. Open offer. Uh, (laughs) So when you think about the future of blockchain, where do you see blockchain technology being in the next, let's say, two, five and 10 years? What do you see us using blockchain for? How do you see it, the technology advancing? Describe in your perfect world, like where you see us being in two, five and 10 years. Great. This is a cool question. And I'm sure people who watch a show that I've me answering this question a year ago is a lot different than what it'll be today. So it's always interesting. Two years from now, I have a feeling that we are going to see a much clearer picture about which blockchain frameworks and ancillary technologies in areas like interoperability and wallets and all these other things. It'll be a lot clearer who has a winning product that users want to use that have adequately balanced incentives, that work the way they're supposed to work, that have meaningful adoption, it's gonna be a lot clearer. We'll have winners and losers, which we don't have right now. Like right now, it's too early to say, oh, this chain is gonna be here for the long term, this one's not, or this one's already failed. It's really hard to say that now. Two years, I think we're gonna have that. We're also gonna have the next generation of Ethereum in a much more complete sense, Ethereum 2.0. So it'll be really interesting to see how that pans out and be a very important thing for this industry to figure out what's going to happen there. In five years, I think we're going to be making our transition to a world where blockchain disappears. And I don't mean disappears in the sense that it's not used, but disappears in the sense that people who are using it don't know that they're using it. And by the time we get to that five-year mark, we're going to start to see more meaningful adoption at the enterprise level in big, bigger services. You're going to have large companies not just investing in cryptocurrency on their balance sheet, but you're going to have them in a valuable way, in a value-added way, not just a silly NFT drop that doesn't have a lot of value, but really meaningfully built into their products, integrations with blockchain technology. And then in 10 years, I believe blockchain will It'll almost be an afterthought, except for people that are passionate about how things work and passionate about why things work the way that they do. People who are sitting here right now will probably still appreciate and admire it the same way that someone who is involved in computer science and the building of early mobile applications still looks at mobile apps in a very different way. Like I remember how this was when no one knew about it and no one cared about it. I know how it works. But in 10 years, I have a feeling very few people will know how it works or really even care. And that's okay, but almost everyone will be using it. And I think that's really where the end game is. The user experience is so good and the adoption is so widespread that people maybe don't even have a full appreciation for what technology they're using. Yeah, so that just made me think of another question, which is, do you see, I guess if you see block, do you see blockchain completely replacing I guess, like the internet or whatever it is that we use today to communicate, to serve the web, to use social media, like day-to-day things. Do you see blockchain taking over all of that? And if so, I guess like the biggest thing that scares me about that is just like the the like permanence of blockchain mm-hmm. and also how public it is. Do I want all of my actions being recorded on the blockchain for everyone to see? Like how many mm-hmm. times have you tweeted something 
that you deleted or looked back on a tweet that you sent 10 years ago and absolutely cringed at who you used to be. <laughs> like, I don't want any of yeah. that documented for eternity, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm with you on that. And I do think that there's always, there are positive and negative outcomes from any technology, any social change, like everything. I think though that today, the internet's already gotten to the point where it's almost like that already. Because if you make a mistake, even though it's not technologically immutable, it's almost socially immutable because all it takes is one person to snap that, to take a screen grab, to lock it away in a database and it's replicated everywhere. And even when you request deletion with a social media platform or a website that you don't own, it's not necessarily for sure gone, at least not immediately. So I, I do think that there's some challenges and, and some conceptual things that are gonna have to be worked around in the future. And I don't think that blockchain as a technology is even capable of just rip and replacing all of the what the internet is and all the services that are built there. What it will be is it will shift the model and it will shift the way that we use the technologies that already exist because there'll be this ownership layer that's that underlies everything. So it's more of an augmentation than it is a replacement in, in my humble opinion that will just really shift the operating model for the internet in the way that we've been using it the last 10 to 20 years. Yeah, I, I think that makes a lot of sense to me. That's a great answer. I, I, that was like a genuine question I didn't have an answer to. So I, I think what you said <laughs> makes a lot of sense. Great. Awesome. What are some final thoughts you want to leave listeners with when they think about blockchain technology, how it works and how they should interact with it day to day? I think the, the, the best piece of advice that I could give is to be patient with yourself and be patient in the space and take the time to learn as much as possible before you put a penny on the line. And I know that runs counter to the way that this space is set up with social media. It's all about FOMO. It's all about get in life-changing wealth, but that's really not what it's about. Yes, that's a byproduct. Yes, you can find that. It's far from a guarantee and far fewer people achieve that than you might think by watching what's going on in, in the, the social media world. But the biggest thing is I think you have to look at this like any other complex new thing. And it will probably take a while for you to find the person or the visualization or the the way someone explains it for it to click for you. So today, my explanation of blockchain might have gotten you 30% of the way there and someone else, it got them 90% of the way there because everyone thinks differently. So just keep looking and don't be afraid to watch 20 videos on the same topic until it clicks because that's what it takes. So there's no, I'm technical and I'm non-technical. I can figure it out and you can't. Everyone can figure it out. It's just about explaining it in a way that makes sense to you. So that would be my biggest advice. Take the time to learn those things and really pick them up and get a foundational understanding. And you'll be shocked at how quickly you can understand new things that come up in this space and spot the places where people are being dishonest with you about what the capabilities of their thing is you'll get you'll start to notice the buzzwords and how they're used and where it looks a little fishy so that's my biggest piece of advice i love that that is excellent advice ashoshi thank you again so much for taking the time to come on here and teach everybody about blockchain i thought you did an excellent job of explaining Thanks. it to non-technical people before you go just tell people where they can find you if they have any follow-up questions for you or if they just want to follow your tweets or whatever and then also go ahead and plug your youtube channel too and anything else you're working on right now 
Sure. Appreciate that opportunity. Yeah. So I would say the place I'm most active in more real time answering questions, I try my best to do so is on Twitter. I am at Heshoshi4. That's H-A-S-H-O-S-H-I number four. Beware of scammers. They're all over the place. The the place where I post most of my content is on YouTube. It's also youtube.com slash forward slash C forward slash Heshoshi4. All the same across the board. But yeah, I'm always trying to answer questions. If you have questions, I actually do not live necessarily, but I do a video Q&A that I pull questions from YouTube comments and from Twitter every Saturday on my Crypto Over Coffee show. So if you have questions, noob questions don't exist. Any question goes. So feel free to ask them. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. We'll be back again uh, very soon with our very last episode of Down the Rabbit Hole for this season. And then we'll break for the holidays and be back in January. Thanks again, Hashoshi, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for having me. Crypto makes no sense.